and welcome to Be Natural, the podcast featuring stories from the badass women of the film and television industry. My name is Katherine Poole, but you can call me Kat, and today I'll be talking with the amazing documentarian and producer, Amy Geller. Amy Geller's award-winning productions, PBS's The War That Made America, For the Love of Movies, The Story of American Film Criticism, The Guys Next Door, and The Rabbi Goes West, both which she co-directed, have screened at film festivals around the world. She was president of New England Women in Film, the artistic director of the Boston Jewish Film Festival, and teaches production courses at Emerson College and Boston University. So I had Amy last semester as my intro to producing professor, and one of the things we obviously really talked about was what does a producer do? Because, I mean, they do so much and so many different things. And so I was wondering if you could talk maybe just a little bit about what a day in the life of a producer might look like. So I can talk about a day in life of my experience of producer because I think, it, you know, we looked at what is producing over an entire semester because <laughs> it's a complicated question. Well, I see myself and I hope that I was inspiring students to think about themselves as creative producers. So I both am sort of marrying, <clears throat> excuse me, the business side. In my case, I do a lot of fundraising for the independent documentary work that I do with the creative side, which is really thinking about what's the story, what's the best way to tell it, who are the best people to, who are the best characters, the best subjects to tell that story, and who's the audience that I want to connect with, with the work that I'm, I'm doing. So right now, I'm primarily a documentary filmmaker, although I have worked in, produ in produced fiction in the past and educational work and industrial work and commercial work and branded content. I'm my sort of heart is in documentary production. And so that's kind of where, where I'm centered right now. I think somewhere deep down, I think documentary was sort of always in my soul, I, I guess. <clears throat> but I didn't know when I was an undergraduate. I knew, I, I, this sounds incredibly idealistic, but I just knew that what I loved about film was that it could touch people in an emotional way. And you didn't have to speak the language, you know, through images, you could tell these stories and really impact people. And I think even though I've become a more grizzled producer over the years, <laughs> I still feel that way. And and I I think what I love about teaching, just to get off the topic for one second, is that I, I, I'm inspired by young people who I feel like have that same passion. It reminds me of why I went into film in the first place. And so I love that that sort of marriage of continuing, I freelance and continue to produce. And I also teach and that kind of balance really is, helps me in my own work. And I think makes me a better teacher because I'm able to, to do the two things simultaneously. It's challenging to do, to do, they're very different parts of your brain, but I, but I, I love that balance. And did you always think about teaching? Like, when did you decide or when did you think, oh, maybe, maybe I'll try teaching? No, I mean, I, I think like my assumption was that people went to school to teach and, you know, that you had to have this sort of, I don't know, some kind of knowledge about like how to teach. And it never occurred to me that I would have something to share, I guess. Like, you know, you just sort of, you're making movies in a vacuum. You're, you know, you're thinking about that part of it and you're not thinking about sort of what you might be able to give back. And so I was first asked to teach a production course at BU in 2005, I think, and I and I did it, and I loved it, and I and I was just in part because I learned as much as I feel like I was sharing. Like it was a very collaborative environment, um, 
And I kind of got the bug and what I discovered. And and to be honest, like I know you're going to we're going to talk about failure resumes. I would say like initially I was not good at producing. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not good at teaching. Producing I was I had like a, a knack for that was sort of like my my special skill. But teaching I really struggled with. And I didn't talk about this when I when I was in my class, but I'll talk about it now. And I was, you know, I'm kind of a perfectionist and I I feel like I want to, you know, I just want to be one of those people that just knows what they're doing whenever they do something and I want to really do it well. <clears throat> and I wasn't a great teacher initially. And so I really had to apply myself. I had to learn how to teach. I had to, I took some courses. I talked to other professors and I, I really sort of and I listen to students and, and try different things. And I'm still doing that as a teacher. And I learned that that's good to experiment in the classroom, that everything has to be figured out. So yeah, so I became better at teaching over the five or six years that I've been doing it. And now I really love it. And I, and I, I yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't know what, what more I could say, say about uh, teaching, but yeah, it's that combination, I think, of, of the practical skills of producing with the kind of collaborative and sharing skills of teaching that really make me the happiest right now. Well, I will say that you are an amazing professor and I know that we all just loved you. You also come highly recommended from other students as well. You are definitely loved at Emerson. And so you talked about being a perfectionist and I know I'm the same way. I have to do everything the best it can be. Do you ever see that perfectionism going back into your documentary work or in your work as a producer? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I'm, I'm developing a new project right now. And I had a conversation with my sister the other day and she said, well, do you think that you could not do it like 150 percent like you do all your other projects? And I said, no, I don't think I can because I've discovered that there's a part of me that that that's just who I am, that, you know, when I when I'm passionate about something, when I deeply care about a subject once I commit to it it's it's really hard for me to just like only do it 75 percent having said that I've learned you know better ways of giving myself breaks and and taking vacations and you know doing things in between that bring some more balance to to my general life but yeah I'm, it's I still really struggle with that and I think it sort of manifests itself more than any place, I think, in the storytelling. So <clears throat> a big part of documentary filmmaking is is editing. Is, you know, really you you have an idea of what your story is going to be. And you, you know, you, you sort of have like a, maybe a thesis even, like something that you're trying to explore or question. And then you start to explore that and you your subjects tell you things that you didn't know when you started the project. You start researching and you learn things you didn't know. And the film often can shift direction, you know, in mid-course. And so what happens in the editing room is you bring all that together. You sort of figure out, okay, what is the story structure? Wh who are the key people? What am I really trying to say? <clears throat> Excuse me again. And I find like when it comes to structure and when it comes to that process, I, I just... I'm like a dog with a bone. I just won't let go until it's until it's working, until it really makes sense, until I show it to different audiences, small, you know, focus groups and until they can really say, yes, this is I get it. I, I'm, I'm seeing this. This is really working for me. So, yeah, that that that's where it really I really find that perfectionism kind of sticking. And I often collaborate with other filmmakers. So all the films that I've directed. I've been co-directions. So I, I have a fellow director that I'm 
negotiating with. And so part of the challenge when you have that is that if that person isn't a perfectionist, which is probably a good thing, then you you debate, you argue, you really um, have to make your case for why you want to stay on this particular scene and make it really sing because the other person wants to move on and just, you know, get get to the next stage of the filmmaking process. So anyway, that's that's where I find it's that perfectionism pops up. <laughs> and The Guys Next Door was a partner production. You had co-directed it with your partner. I was just wondering how you found that story. I watched it and it was so heartwarming and so beautiful. And I just found myself wondering, how did you find these families? How did you find this story? Yeah, thank you for watching that. So I went to Bates College undergraduate and I read an article actually in my alumni magazine about this gay couple who wanted to have kids and their very good friend who basically offered to, to do it for them. And she was in her 40s with three teenage kids at the time. And so she she said, like, for free, I just want, you know, I want you to have a family. In fact, she was really the one to kind of push this. To and I and I they all went to Bates before me. They'd graduated a few years, so I didn't know them when I was there. But I read this story and I thought, oh, my God, what an amazing story. Like there were images in, in the in the you know, like it was like a full page spread and they had all these beautiful images of this family. And, and I thought God, this would be amazing, but it had already happened. So it sort of felt like, OK, if I wanted to find a story that's unfolding, this would kind of be a historic, more of a historic story, even though it, you know, only happened a few years before. So um, at the bottom of that article was like a PS. She's doing it again. She's having a second kid for them. And I thought, okay, I've got to reach out to them. And we had mutual friends. And I basically sat down with Rachel, the surrogate, and I said, I don't know what this is, but I, I'd love to follow your story. And and would you be open to it? And she said yes. And then she talked to her husband and to her family and to Eric and Sandro, the the gay couple. They all said yes. I I have a wonderful cinematographer that I work with called Ali Humanuk. And I'd worked with her on previous projects. And I asked her, you know, would you want to co-direct this with me? And she was like, I don't know, let's see, let's go down and film. They were living in New York at the time. And let's see, let's see what we, you know, let's see. And so she came, we filmed for, I don't know, maybe two days with both families. And she completely fell in love. I fell in love. And she sort of turned to me at the end of the shoot. And she's like, okay, I'm ready to jump off this cliff with you because that's what sometimes documentary film feels like you have to take a big risk you don't know what it's going to be when, when you start this process and so we were on that journey that journey took us five years to film and you know post-produce edit and then and that's the film has played film festivals all over the world and has been on public television and, and has really touched a lot of people which is which has been a, a wonderful thing so yeah it was it was a great a great experience. And I was my first film as a director. So prior to that, I'd been a producer and I'd supported other people's work and other people's visions, which I think is the most simplest definition. A producer is really the person that kind of fosters and creates the environment that allows for the project to thrive or the story to be told in the best way possible. And so um, this this experience I was producing with Guys Next Door, but I was also directing. So I had that dual, you know, I was very involved creatively and I was, you know, creating the environment for us to be involved creatively and to hire the people that we needed to hire and to, and to make the, you know, to tell the story in the best way. 
Yeah. And it happens over five years. So you really get to see Rachel Maria and Eleanor grow up throughout the film. What was it like working with the girls and, and kind of almost getting to watch them grow up too as the filmmaker? Yeah, so th- it's interesting. It's a great question because when we started, our original kind of conceit of the film was a year in the life of this family. And then as, we, and so we filmed pretty intensely for a year, like maybe every, I don't know, every couple of weeks we'd go and, and you know, spend a week in there and, or three or four days. And Ali's just an incredible, incredible cinematographer. Cinema verite, which is kind of that direct cinema style where you're really kind of a fly on the wall and you're following these characters through the intimate moments of their lives. She's brilliant at that. And I think the film really, you know, it worked because that's the story we wanted to tell and that's the style that, that she films brilliantly in. So, yeah, so we started as a year. And then, and then we realized as we we're making it, like, all oh, these kids are growing up and they're becoming people. They're really developing, you know, their independence and their own personalities and, and their own interests. And so we, we kept filming and we kept filming and we wouldn't, it wasn't as frequent, but we would kind of go back like maybe every three or four months and sort of do a check-in with them. And and it was a hard film. That's the hardest thing about documentaries is like, when do you end? When do you stop filming? What's the end of the story? And you sometimes don't know that when you're editing or even when you're filming. So you just keep filming. And we started to edit while we were filming. So there was a point at which after about a year, we, you know, we, we were keeping filming, but we also were, we hired an editor and we were working collaboratively collaboratively with that editor and and then you know I'm not I don't even remember now like what the defining final I think it was like we just knew at some point that we had to stop filming because what happens a lot of times when you film for three or four or five years you become very close with your subjects you're not they're not just subjects anymore they become your friends and we we wanted to like shift from being filmmakers to having like a friendship with them and and, and exclusively a friendship and not sort of following their lives anymore. So I think at some point we had to say, okay, this is, this is, this is the line, no more filming. And we're going to, you know, I mean, we could have gone on, the story honestly continues and people have asked us, you know, are you going to make a part two? And we've thought about it, but it's, it would be a complicated story to to continue to tell. And we'll see, we'll see what happens. (laughs) Have you stayed in touch do you still see pictures of Rachel Maria and Eleanor? Yeah, they're, you know, they're like, they're not little babies anymore. They're, you know, yeah, they're sort of ordering on that. They're tweens, I guess you'd call them. And I haven't seen them during COVID, but I hope to see them sometime this summer. Yeah, but they're amazing. <laughs> There's also this cultural element, too, you know, because... Sandro is Italian and he talks about his Italian roots, but, you know, also the homophobia he faced back home. And then you went and filmed in Italy when they spend part of the summer there. And so could you talk a little bit about what it was like to film abroad and, you know, also a little bit about this interplay of these different cultures? Yeah, interestingly, it was, I mean, it's complicated just logistically, you know, to fly all your gear over and to, you know, be in, in a different country and 
different electrical and, you know, making sure you back up all your footage and all that kind of stuff. But it's because we were with them and we were staying with them. That That's a big piece of this film is sort of the intimacy that we were able to achieve, the access that we had to to our subjects. And we would live with them while we filmed. And so Sandro has this family home in Sardinia where he grew up and he invited us to stay with them while we were there. And so it just sort of felt like the same as it felt here. You know, we were we were totally enmeshed in their lives we his family although they didn't speak that english that well like completely embraced us it just felt like a very welcoming you know what you see of sandro in the film he's just the the kindest most hospitable person that's very much the italian way and so we felt very welcome and very very i mean just we were able to to keep filming and and to keep sort of being that fly on the wall even even in, in a different country so it yeah there weren't we didn't really run into many logistical issues it was it, yeah it was pretty seamless i mean we did hire what is called like a fixer a friend of sandra's who just knew like the best locations to to capture you know these sort of beautiful landscapes and certain times of day the light in sardinia is really beautiful and so we did that but you know it was it was actually pretty easy given you know what what you can what the problems that one can face and i think that's partly because we we just stayed with them and we were in their lives and it was kind of a continuation of what we had in in new york and in portland when we were in the states italy is one of my favorite countries i've been twice now and I could just keep going back. It's it's so beautiful. Have you been to or southern Italy? I have been to the Amalfi Coast, so Capri and and Sorrento in that area. I have not been to Sardinia though. But after watching that, I was like, oh, that's gonna be on my list. Great, <laughs> yeah, I highly recommend it. I'll put you in touch with Sandro because he he'll know all the hot spots to go. Oh, that would be great. Speaking of intimacy too. You filmed the birth of Eleanor, and uh, and first off, Rachel was a champ. I mean, she had all these people around her and the camera on her, and uh, she made it look like effortless, which we all know it's not. But what was it like navigating that moment? You know, of someone literally giving birth. That was extraordinary, actually, to be given the gift of being able to be present. So I don't have children. Allie, my co-director, doesn't have children, biological children. And so we, you know, we, we, we filmed births before, interestingly enough, but we had never filmed it in that way. We had never been, first of all, I don't think 16 people are supposed to be in a birthing room. <laughs> it's not the typical experience you have when you're when you're birthing a child, but because Rachel gave us permission and because actually her brother-in-law was her OBGYN. So wow. at, we had a lot of, you know, we had great access because of that. And he really he cared about this story and really wanted to help, you know, promote it in any way he could. So getting permission from the hospital and, and doing that kind of unusual thing of, of having so many people there at once was, was fairly seamless, but yeah, it was, it was, incredible to be, you know, a part of that experience to, for, for that family to allow us to capture that and, you know, for Rachel to be okay with, with that happening. And, and I mean, what's so interesting about the birthing scene is that I think you really see the way everybody's interconnected, the, the, the kind of this, this soul connection between Eric and Sandra's family and, and Rachel and Tony's family. Rachel, 
Rachel's two d- daughters were there, I believe. Her oldest daughter was there for like most of the of the birthing time, but then also her middle daughter, her middle child came, and Sandro's sister was there, and Rachel's mother was there, and I don't know. There was like there were just people kind of coming and going all day, and. It was just such an, a, a positive experience and, and just, like I say, a gift to really be a part of that. And I think that that what we felt in the room is very much what you see on screen, which is just that really beautiful connection between all these people who are not biologically connected, but are, you know, forever intimately connected. So, yeah. I totally agree. You can just see how much those families love each other, especially watching the New Year scenes with the fireworks. You can see how they really are just one big family. It really is a beautiful film. I can't say it enough. Those of you who haven't seen it, go watch it. It is such a great documentary. Thank you. Now, in class, we talked about something called a failure resume. Could you describe a little bit what a failure resume is and, you know, also why you find them so important? Yeah, so I was inspired, and I'm going to forget her name, but she's a famous Hollywood producer. Maybe you know, because we did the assignment, but anyway, she she had talked about, I, I listened to a podcast um, with her, and she had talked about actually creating a failure resume to, to really look at, you know, all the all the places where she was fired, or the job didn't work out, or, you know, these 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 experiences that aren't necessarily, you know, positive on the surface, have really shaped her career and sort of shaped um, how she sees herself as a producer. And so I thought, oh, that'd be really interesting to like experiment with that in the classroom and see what it would be like to, to you know, create a, a joint failure resume as a class and to really think about like, how how does failure teach us things? And as somebody who's a perfectionist, like to use that as a tool to talk about this is, you know, an incredibly, incredibly competitive industry, like many industries, but it's flooded with very talented, creative people. And it often your success isn't necessarily connected to your intelligence. It's like a lot of it has to do with luck and being in the right place at the right time. And and so, and who you know and the connections that you have in the industry. So I just thought like, It'd be really interesting as a way in to talk about success and failure in the classroom to try this experiment together. And I think it was really interesting. I've thought a lot about it since we did it because it was the first time I did it. I've taught this class before at Emerson, the intro to producing class, but it was the first time I did the failure resume experiment. And one student, I don't remember if it was in your section, but one student said that she felt like a lot of people put things that were like not as risky, not as big a failure that they as they could have put that sort of the people, you know, try, either tried to put something funny or something that was sort of less scary, like, you know, their their least scariest failure moments. And and I thought, huh, that's really interesting. Like even in this moment of of trying to be transparent and trying to create an environment for people to talk about it, people felt like they wanted, they were, you know, they weren't sure that they were comfortable sharing those failures with the, with their fellow students. And I, so I've thought a lot about that. And I think part of that was because of me, like I didn't go far enough in what I, what, what I put down. And cause I, the way I started it was to sort of list like three or four things that I feel like where professionally I have failed. And so that's something I'm going to 
tweak moving forward is sort of like, how can I set the tone so that people feel like they can really share? Because I just, I, I feel that we, and this is something I'm, I'm really thinking about and struggling with as a, as a filmmaker is in order to be successful in this industry, you have to take huge risks. And so failure is often the result of those risks, right? And so you don't, if you, if you just are scared of failure, you're not going to take that, that jump. And so I've, that's been really hard for me to wrap my brain around, but, but I think that that idea is really key in this industry. If you don't put it out there, you won't know if you're going to be successful. You won't know if what you, your idea is going to hit. And nine times out of 10, you're going to be rejected. You're going to not get into that festival. That script isn't going to be bought. You're not going to get that grant. You know, you're, you're, maybe you won't get that job, but if you don't try, you won't know if you're, if you can really be successful. So it's all kind of cliche, but I've, it's just sort of what I've discovered in this industry and, and it's how I've kind of moved forward. I just, you have to keep, keep that, put that drive, that push to kind of have some confidence in the back of your mind that even if your idea doesn't click, okay, I'm going to put it back in this box over here and I'm going to go on to the next idea and I'm not going to give up and I'm just going to move, keep moving forward. And that's sort of how I've been able to survive this crazy industry of film production. <laughs> I think it was my class. I think we were talking about how a lot of people wrote down rejections rather than failures. A lot of people said they applied to internships, but they only heard back from one or they didn't hear back from any. And I think it was a lot of those, if I remember correctly. But it also reminds me of the saying, fail fast. I don't know if you've heard of that. You're really big at Pixar. They always say, fail fast. Just get the mistakes out of the way. You fail. Okay, you failed. You keep moving. It's like you said, it's this idea of you have to keep pushing forward, but you can't be afraid to take the risk because then you're not going to get anywhere. Exactly. I think the, the other thing is that when you have an idea, even though it might not be embraced by other people and they might say, like, oh, no, that, that doesn't work. That's horrible or whatever. Often just that process of sharing ideas. I mean, this, this is not at every stage of production, but at the idea making stage, the brainstorming stage, it leads to other things. So like, don't be scared to to throw your hat in the ring to put an idea out there because oftentimes it just moves the dial. Like people aren't thinking that direction and you sort of shift the energy and suddenly, oh, that opens up this door for people to have different ideas and for and to, for the project to flow through whatever, you know, wherever it's stuck or whatever. So I think that's another big piece of failure is to not be afraid to just throw out whatever's in your head because it can lead to something that you haven't even thought of, you know, and 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 just kind of open that creative flow that, that, that you know, that, that happens. So- I don't know. That's my experience anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually doing something right now called The Artist's Way. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it, but it's by Julie Cameron. And one of the things you do is morning pages where you just sit and it's three pages uninterrupted. You just write whatever comes to mind. And the whole point is that you don't care what it says. You don't read it afterwards. You just write everything through in one shot, whatever comes to mind. It could just be, I hate morning pages again and again. Uh, it's a free flow. Uh, that way you can open yourself up and just see what comes out. And another part is getting yourself to write even when you don't want to write. Uh, you create this habit where, you know, you wake up and you're like, I'm really tired. I don't really want to do morning pages. But you do them. And then later on when you want to be, you know, more productive with your writing, well, I don't really want to write right now, but I can do it because, you know, I did it with the morning pages. 
It's another way of training your brain and opening up that flow as well. Totally. Just the discipline of of doing it, you know, daily, I think is a huge practice. I'm a big, this is not on topic, but I'm a big yoga, like morning yoga person. And there's something about, you know, waking up, going onto the mat and just, you know, having like that 20, 25, 30 minutes of, of kind of practice that trains my body in a way that it sets the tone for the day that like opens up my mind and my you know, all the all the different interconnected parts of me that I feel is just incredibly valuable. So it's not the same as writing. I, I'm I'm not a writer, but I have enormous respect for for writers because I know how hard it is. My husband is a writer and and I know how how scary it is to face that blank page and, you know, and and really try to, you know, I don't know, just figure out how you're going to create something. I, I mean, I guess I, I am a writer in the sense that I write my films, you know, they're not like formally written with text necessarily, but they're, they're written in the sense of being a constructed story. So I know that process, which is, you know, really painful, but, but I, but I love it. I mean, I, that's, that's, I think that's one of the things I've discovered in mid-career as a producer of documentaries. I love being in the edit room. I love telling stories structurally. I love figuring out the puzzle of a story. And I love facing that fear because I feel like many times in that process, both myself and my co-director and my editor who are, you know, usually we're all just in the, in the weeds on trying to figure out the story we all at one point or another feel this incredible self-crippling, self, you know, like confidence crisis. We're never going to get this. This is never going to work. We're never going to be able to tell the story. And then we figure it out. And it just, it's just like incredible. You know, and I'm sure as a writer, I would imagine that's kind of maybe some of the similar process that you go. I would definitely agree. It's that feeling of finding the story, of going down a path you didn't think it was going to take, and then suddenly you're there and you're just along for the ride. Uh, it's also having a plot problem and you're really brainstorming on it. And then you figure it out and there's that feeling, right, of just like, that's it. You know, you figured it out. And maybe it's just you and maybe it's going to get written out in the fifth draft, but right now you have the solution and that's what matters. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up yoga because I do think there's this connection between art and mindfulness of, you know, being open to images and sounds and things because that's where we create. That's what we create from. So I think doing yoga and through that practice of being open is so important because it's just going to fuel creativity later on. Yeah, it's kind of a I, I like this idea of the senses and kind of opening up, you know, not just your your the brain sense or your eyes, but, you know, the feeling of touch and smell and and movement and all of those things just are connected. And I, I think, you know, your body is a conduit. You know, if if your body's stuck, your mind can be stuck, too. Or if your mind is stuck, you can find you know places in your body that you're holding tension or anxiety or whatever. So I, I, I do think you're right. There is that there's a flow that happens and that, you know, not always because you can you could do all these modalities, these meditation and things. And sometimes you still are stuck. But it definitely for me, it, it's really been very, very helpful. And a daily practice, like you say, is key. And you're also pretty busy right now. You're doing this animation project and that's pretty different for you, right? You've never done animation before. 
Yeah. So I'm working with a, a producer that I've worked with in the past. I, I worked for six years in an educational video production company in Newton called NKP Media. And we did back when people read books. <laughs> I know you do, Kat, but uh, a lot of a lot of people don't. And we were we were hired by publishing companies to create ancillary video material that would be packaged with college textbooks. So like case study, business case studies, you know, abnormal psychology profiles, you know, like nursing training videos, like all, all that kind of stuff. So I work with this wonderful team, a husband and wife team. And, and they hired me to help produce this 40-minute animated series for the state of Minnesota. And it's basically on how to weatherize your home, so how to make your home more efficient, safe, and, and healthy. And it's aimed at low-income families in the state of Minnesota. And part of the reason we decided to do animation is because it's COVID and it's very hard to, you know, when we started this project, it was, we were like enmeshed in covid with not really a vaccine in sight. Thankfully, that has changed. But at the time, it just felt like the safest way to tell the story. And and so, yeah, we started in, and I guess in January or December. And it's been fascinating. We, you know, I've never done animation. I never produced animation. I've, I've done a little like, you know, animation as illustration in, in my projects, but I've never done sort of 40 minutes of only animation. So it's been really interesting you have to build everything. You have to create it all from scratch. And then when you work with the clients, like, you know, in our case, the state of Minnesota, you know, they are engineers and they think a certain way and they want these you know, special details. We are storytellers. We think a different way. And so that it's a real collaborative process in terms of, you know, okay, this this particular piece of insulation is really important, but it doesn't move the story forward. So, you know, it's been interesting to that, that give and take that happens often in projects, but certainly when you are hired by clients, you have to, you know, you want them to be happy and you want to give them what they want, but you also want to make sure that audiences connect with the story. So, so yeah, that, that process has been really interesting and really rewarding. And we're deep into the, we've, you know, we're, it's a 10 segment or nine, actually nine, nine segment series. And so we're, you know, it's a bit learning about all the different stages of, of animation. And there are like, there are many, many more stages than there are in a normal production, as you probably know, if you're a Pixar fan. And so it's sort of learning about all those stages and, and I've, I've loved it. I mean, it, I'm, I'm a producer who both loves organization and coordination and logistics and also is very, very creative and, and, and wants to figure out, like, like I said before, the best way to tell the story. And so I love that this project has really been a marriage of those two things. It's been a lot of, you know, project management. There's lots of different team members. We're translating the series into Somali, into Hmong, into Spanish. And so, you know, we're, and we're working with academic advisors in all of those languages to make sure that culturally we're, you know, we're not doing anything that is offensive or is problematic in these different cultures. For example, we learned that Somalis only use their right hand to eat, that it's impure to use your left. And so we had a scene where we had a family sitting around the table, an animated family sitting around the table, and, you know, everybody was eating with different hands. And so we realized, okay, we have to change that. So those kind of interesting, you know, really small, but like important cultural details we're we're really committed to telling the story in a way that's going to connect with those different audiences. So so yeah, it's been it's been so much fun. I would love to do more animation. I feel like I've learned so much that I I now, you know, now I'm like not a pro, but I'm 
I'm way more educated than I was initially, and it would be great to to continue to do it. And we'll see. We'll see what happens. But yeah, and then I have, I'm working on a new documentary project, and I'll be teaching several classes this fall at both Emerson and BU. So yeah, so a full a full slate. Yes, you are very busy, which is why I'm so happy that you're here and, and so grateful that you could be here today. So obviously, this podcast is all about women in the industry. And so you are part of the organizations, the Film Fatales and Women in Film and Video New England. So could you talk a little bit about your involvement in those organizations and how people can learn more about them? Yeah. So I think that, you know, one of the great things about Boston is it has a lot of wonderful resources for, you know, young filmmakers, mid-career filmmakers. It's it's really a documentary community, but what's happened in the last, I'd say like 10 to 15 years is that there's a lot of like Hollywood feature films that come and film here. So there's, a, you know, a big t- talented crew pool of, you know, cinematographers, gaffers, grips, you know, so there, there's a lot of opportunities for, for people in, in the film industry here in the greater Boston area. It's not L.A. or New York, but it still has a really rich film industry. And one of the things that, you know, that I think film industry struggles with everywhere is opportunities for women and also people of color just moving up in the industry. And and so many, many years before me, this wonderful organization called Women in Film and Video New England back in the 70s was started by a number of, of feminist filmmakers really as a way to support one another and to get each other's work out there. And I was lucky enough to be, you know, to sort of become a board member back in the 2000s, early, like late, nine, late 90s, early 2000s. And then I was in, invited to be a vice president and was sort of groomed, I guess you'd say, <laughs> to be to then become the president. So for two years, I was the president of that organization. And, and it's it really changed under the leadership of the different people who ran it. But, you know, the mission was the same, which was to continue to create opportunities for women in the industry and and to kind of showcase are the work of the women in the industry. So I had organized as part of my tenure as president, a, like a, a retrospective of films by our members. So it was like a 20 year retrospective. And we looked at films of past members and current members. And, and I was really, really, really proud of that. And, you know, that we have award, an awards event where we honor various women in the industry in, in this area and do all kinds of educational work. And, and we even did, I actually we were offering to produce a video, like a promotional video for a nonprofit organization that, you know, needed, needed that kind of resource. So we ended up working with this one. I don't even know if they're still around this, this group called Girls Inc. that was there to, to help young girls of color in the greater Boston area. And so we did like a promotional video for them that they, they used to help, you know, fundraise and get the word out about their, their organization. So I'm still involved with women in film and video. I'm not, I mean, I'm not on the board anymore. There are wonderful women that continue to to you know move move that mission forward, but I still participate. It's unfortunately it's all on Zoom these days, like everything else. Hopefully that will start to transition in the fall back to you know in person events and things like that. And then about maybe I want to say like maybe three years ago, there is a group called Film Fatales, which is a national organization that was started in New York by Leah Merhoff, a fiction filmmaker to create what's called an old boys network for film. So many film festival programmers at that time were men, specifically white men. 
And they were often choosing, selecting films that were by white men. And we, we start, she started that organization to really become a lobbying organization to get film festivals to look at films by women and specifically women directors and to really change that narrative. Because I think like at that time in Hollywood, you know, there was maybe 99% of films that were the top 250 films were directed by women. I don't know that it's that different, but it's changing because so many people are working on these issues. And so that organization just kind of exploded. It started in New York as a way to support fiction film directors. And there are now chapters all over the world. Our chapter in Boston isn't doesn't only support fiction filmmakers because Boston is, is a real mix of film and it's sort of more documentary focused. But we also, you know, welcome screenwriters and film professors and academics and editors and, you know, document documentary documentary filmmakers and, you know, people at various stages of their career. So it's, it's, and that mission is similar to women in film, but different in that, you know, we're really trying to, again, just create opportunities for our work to be shown, create opportunities to, to have a more sustainable career in this industry. If COVID has shown us anything, it's that, you know, for independence, this world of, of film is I mean, before COVID, it was unsustainable. During COVID, it was not sustainable at all. And so, you know, we're we're really trying to figure out how to create more opportunities for 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 women, for people of color, and and to get our work out in the world. So, yeah. So it's it's been to be honest, it's been hard to be as active during COVID because I'm not. A, I mean, as much as I love teaching, I'm I would much prefer to be like in the room with people than to be on Zoom. And so I think, you know, a lot of us feel like another Zoom meeting after a day of Zoom meetings or Zoom teachings or whatever is hard to do. So I think, you know, the greatest thing about Film Fatales is that that we come to somebody's house, we all meet, you know, in, in one place, we bring our own, everybody has like a potluck meal and we we talk about, you know, whatever issue that we're struggling with as producers, as filmmakers, as creators in this industry and and that is super valuable. And, and it's like, you can do it on Zoom, but it's it's so much more productive when you're in person. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the fall when we'll be able to resume those kind of activities and connect with each other again in that way. Yeah, sounds like an amazing community. I just love the idea of a potluck. It just sounds so nice after a year of not seeing anyone. I know. I, can't, I know. It was like the first time I had people over to my house in a year and a half was about a week and a half ago. And it was like, oh, my God, this is an amazing experience. It just was like groundbreaking. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's feels really I feel very, you know, lucky to be where we are right now and very grateful. I think there's absolutely a wonderful opportunity to to continue to have those more global conversations online. And I think people will do that. I think they've seen the value in that. And I think, you know, organizations like Sundance and, and others will continue to do that. And I, I love that, but it's like just being on Zoom all the time, having everything happen that way, I think is, I don't know, for me, I, I have to say has been incredibly draining. And yeah. so oh, yeah. the, the idea of having that that balance is fine, but the, you know, the all the time piece. I mean, with Emerson, I, I loved being in the classroom with you guys. Like, I loved that. I know it was weird because we were mass and we were socially distanced, but I still just loved physically being in a space with the students. And I just feel like that 
again, to kind of go back to that yoga piece of like, we learn so much, not just through the verbal, but through, you know, how people look, how they move, you know, what their posture is, like all of those things tell you a lot about people and, and what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And so I felt, felt it was hard to kind of gauge some of that on Zoom, but, but it has created a lot of opportunities. And as a filmmaker, I, I had a film in distribution during, you know, when COVID hit and we, ironically, it was like the, the biggest month, the biggest film festival month of our entire run was like March and April of 2020. And so we had like 16 festivals scheduled and everything went dark and, you know, but we, I felt like, okay, what are we going to, you know, do we just want to sit on the film or do we want to, how do we want to proceed? And so we, we figured out how to navigate that and to create opportunities for different groups to see the film. Film festivals started to come back and they would show the film online. We did Q&As online and we were able to reach audiences that we wouldn't have been able to reach otherwise. So I, I definitely feel like it was wonderful to have that opportunity because I know a lot. And we, you know, we had the advanced opportunity. We were in middle distribution. So we had already been on the festival circuit for like four or five months. So we, we, we'd had the experience of seeing our film with audiences, which I think is invaluable in person. And so we were and it, like, if I was to choose when COVID would hit in, in terms of the distribution of a film, it was, it was like a good time. And we were able to really pivot in a way that I think um, benefited audiences and benefited us. But I feel badly for filmmakers that were, you know, just at the beginning of their run and, had to make the choice about, you know, do I want to actually show virtually or do I want to wait until I can, I can share that with audiences in person. And, you know, people made those decisions and now people are finally going back into cinemas and, you know, it's changing again. But um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was great to, to be able to reach people. There was, there's some real pluses to, to the digital online environment. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're actually out of time. I could talk to you all day, but I know you're a very busy woman. Uh, so where can people go to find your work if they want to see your films or learn more about what you do? So I have a website. It's amymgeller.com and that's A-M-Y, Amazon Marie and G-E-L-L-E-R.com. You can check that out. You'll find information about all my films, all my work, and a little bit about my teaching. And I, I also consult on other people's films. So if you're interested in, you know, talking to me about distribution, about fundraising, about editorial feedback, I'm, I'd love to, to work with you. AmyMGeller.com is where you can find out about me. Thanks, Kat. This is really fun. Thank you so much for being here. And to everyone else, have a great week. And remember to be natural.